Our God is indeed faithful. Let's bow our heads wherever you may be. Close your eyes and be still. Just in a time of silent prayer, ask God to prepare you to hear what he wants you to hear tonight from his holy, infallible word. If there's unconfessed sin in your heart that's blocking God's spirit from speaking, confess that and forsake it and ask God to cleanse you. Do you not know, have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the vault of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root on the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I should be as equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars and the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. Do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run, not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Holy Father, we thank you that though the world is forever changing around us, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You said, I, the God of Israel, change not. And we thank you for the security and the rest that that allows us to know when we build our life on you, the rock. Holy Father, we thank you for the hope of salvation that we celebrate this week as believers across the world. We pray for this week as believers meet in so many different kinds of formats and settings that the Word of God would have its free course and that it would, by the Spirit of God, bring people into the kingdom. Thank you for the power of your Word. You said faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You told us that we're born not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word. So may we never shy away from using the sword that you've entrusted to us as we tell men and women and boys and girls of the good news. So we ask tonight you'd renew our minds as we open your word, open my heart to your spirit in a full and expressive way 
that together we might lift up Christ. And I ask it in his holy name. Amen. Take your Bible, if you have one, turn to Romans chapter 1. There's no notes tonight, but if you want to take some notes, I'll kind of give you an outline for those who are listening. So I hope you'll have a piece of paper. And, and let me encourage you, as you worship as a family every week, we don't know how long this is going to pursue and go on. It could be for several more months. No one really knows for sure. But I will say this should still be a set-a-time part, especially on the Lord's Day, Sunday morning. Um, I don't know what happens in your home. My, my daughter sent me a picture Last Sunday, all her children were dressed for church as they sat there in front of the television and watched their daddy preach, uh, her, her husband, Grant Castleberry. I think that's a good thing. One of our church members sent me a picture of their home, and their son created even a little aisle for someone to walk down. I thought that was really clever. Uh, but, you know, it should be a time when we are setting it aside to worship the living God. So print your notes out in advance. They're usually posted by uh, Friday. You can go online. You can click on the icon for the coming sermon. They're at communitybiblechurch.us. Have your notes printed. Have notes for every member of your family. Have your Bibles ready and ready to worship. All right, Romans chapter 1. Tonight I want to speak on evangelism in difficult times. You know, I believe that God wants to use every Bible-believing, Christ-centered local church. And one of the sad realities of our day is that so many Christians in America have stopped sharing the gospel. And their churches are dying. 75% of their churches in America are on the decline. 50,000 churches, some Bible-believing, some not, are expected to close in the next five years. And maybe even more, that was the projection six months ago, maybe even more now because so many are in financial difficulty. And the sad thing, the sad thing is that so many churches are now going to the government for money and they're really dishonoring and blaspheming the name of God, doing the very thing that God speaks against. We never go to the world to finance God's ways, God's church, God's gospel. We go to Him, not to the world. But these are the sad realities of the day that we live in because the body of Christ has not put first things first, and they've gotten away from basic fundamental truth. And I believe a church that will put first things first, the preaching of the gospel, and its members doing that, that church is going to be blessed of God. And we get a little insight into the heart of the Apostle Paul and what drove him to want to do the work of an evangelist. You may not have the gift of evangelism, but it is a common responsibility that every Christian has to share the gospel. Romans chapter 1, um, we're going to get a running start by looking here. Uh, look in verse 11. He says, For I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. 
So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, every church is commissioned by our Lord Jesus to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every person under creation. And when we think of a church, there is the universal body of Christ that is made up of believers across the world, of every tribe, tongue, and nation. But beyond that, there are local assemblies. And local assemblies are what they are corporately based on what the individuals do. And of course, every Christian ought to be able to claim the command in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. That's the command. The Great Commission is given in five different places in the New Testament. Not all at the same time, but nonetheless, five different places in the New Testament. Yet, when you meet a lot of Christians today, if the truth be told, they can't remember ever when they've introduced someone into the kingdom. They can't remember the last time they shared a word of testimony They can't remember the last time they had a sinner bow their head and pray the sinner's prayer. That's the sad state of the church, not just in America. A lot of Christians speak about sharing their faith, and yet when sometimes you speak of evangelism, they're just kind of ridden in guilt. They sink low into their seat thinking, I just can't do this. Some are paralyzed by fear, and so they leave the job for the professional. Well, that's why we have missionaries. That's why we have pastors like you, Pastor Carl, so you can do the work of an evangelist for us. And yet the Apostle Paul's attitude towards evangelism is almost the exact opposite, at least of the average American Christian today. Look what he states here in verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So what made Paul so eager? If you can find out what made the Apostle Paul tick, then maybe we can share in his enthusiasm. And really, there is no more exciting experience that God can give you after your own conversion than introducing someone else to Christ. I mean, think about it. Many times I'll ask people when they come to meet the pastor, what is the single most important thing that has ever happened to you in all of your history? If they know Christ without stammer or stutter, they'll say, the day I received Jesus is my personal Savior. That's the only thing a born-again Christian could say. That is the single most important event in their human history. Well, if that's the most important event in your human history... What's the most important thing that you could do for another person, obviously, to introduce that person to Jesus Christ? And yet the zeal, the passion, the enthusiasm where Paul can say, I'm eager to preach the gospel is often not there. So we're going to focus on three great I am statements that Paul makes in this section of Scripture But we need to see the context of what is unfolding here. So look back there in your Bible at Romans 1, and let's pick it up here in uh, verse 8. Notice what he says. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. By the way, that's a beautiful illustration 
of intercessory prayer. He's praying to the Father through the Son, and he's going to highlight two different times in the book of Romans that he's praying in the Spirit. So every member of the Godhead is involved in intercessory prayer. For I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Hey, listen, that's what God desires for the people of Community Bible Church. And that's what God desires for the church that you may be fellowshipping in, that you are having an impact that goes beyond your four doors, that goes across the planet. That's really what the Lord desires. And again, this is a beautiful picture of intercessory prayer. Paul is not just praying for his own needs. He's praying for someone else's needs. And sometimes we uh, have a gimme, gimme here and a gimme, gimme there, and it's just all about me. And that really reflects our immaturity in the Lord. As we begin to grow in Christ, certainly our Father wants to hear about our needs. He tells us, He commands us to talk to Him about our daily bread needs. But He also wants us to go beyond our own needs to His work and to the kingdom. So He's praying to the Father through the Son for you all, that is the church at Rome. And then notice in verses 9 and 10, He prays that He might have an opportunity to come and to see them. He says, for God, whom I serve in my spirit and the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Paul is a man who served the Lord in his own spirit. Now, there's a lot of people who serve the Lord in their own abilities, their own strengths, their personalities, but God wants us to serve him, minister in our spirits. And the only way we can do that as Romans chapter 8 will unfold for us, is if we are filled with the Spirit. When your spirit is filled by the Holy Spirit, then you can serve God in your spirit. God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of the Son, is my witness of how unceasingly I make mention of you. You know, sometimes people say, hey, will you pray for such and such? Oh, yeah, I'll pray for it. Thank you. I'll pray for that. And that's about as far as it goes. And they never really pray about it. Now, I don't want to tell someone I'm going to pray for something and not do it. And so very often if someone will ask me, I say, well, look, well, why don't we pray right now? And we'll just pray right there over the phone, out in the hall, doesn't matter. Because I don't want to tell them I'm going to pray for something and not do it. Well, Paul says, God knows that when I say that I pray for you continually, it's the absolute truth. Always, verse 10, in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. Now, why does Paul want to visit these Christians so bad? Well, he gives three specific reasons here in verses 11 to 13. These are kind of by way of introduction. If you're trying to create a, an outline in your mind under introduction, three reasons why Paul wants to visit the church in Rome. Reason number one, Paul wants to help establish them. He wants to help establish them. If you will notice, the very first word in verse 11 is a little three-letter word, for, and it's three letters in Greek, gar. And if your translation doesn't have that word, and some English translations leave it out, then you have less than a literal translation. That's why most expositors, people who preach verse by verse by verse, use translations like the New American Standard, because every word is inspired by God, and you do not want to miss 
what he is saying. It's a causal in Greek. The word gar in Greek means because. In other words, he's giving us a reason. He's linking verse 10 with verse 11. He said, I, I, I make a, a constant prayer for you in verse 9. Always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps somehow by God's will I may succeed and come to you. Why, Paul? Because or for, Gar, I long to see you that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. So his first desire is to impart some spiritual gift to them. Now, what does he mean by that? Now, Paul wrote more in spiritual gifts than any other writer in the New Testament. And when you think about the subject of spiritual gifts, there are four central passages. They're easy to remember, two fours and two twelves. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter, um, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, Romans 12, and then 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Those are the four central passages in the New Testament. And Paul wrote the majority, Peter spoke on them, but they're underscored throughout the New Testament, sprinkled. But those are the central passages that address the subject of spiritual gifts. If you've been born again, on your spiritual birthday, God not only gave you the Holy Spirit to live in you, but he also gave you a spiritual gift. And we're going to be speaking about these in the weeks ahead here, about how to discover and implement your spiritual gift in the local assembly. But every person has a spiritual gift. And Paul the Apostle underscores and emphasizes that spiritual gifts are not given through a human, but they're given by God. In fact, he credits each member of the Trinity with the impartation of spiritual gifts. In Romans chapter 12, he says, God the Father gives spiritual gifts. In Ephesians 4, he says, God the Son gives spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12, he says, God the Spirit gives spiritual gifts. And again, since God is one and the members are inseparable, like with many ministries that are unfolded for us in the Scripture, you see each member of the Godhead having a specific role. God the Father is credited with creation. God the Spirit is. God the Son is. Well, who created the world? God did. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So if God gives spiritual gifts, what does Paul mean? I want to come and impart some spiritual gift. Well, the word impart is a Greek word that means to share in something. And so Paul wants not to give them a spiritual gift that they already had, but as an apostle, he wanted to use at least one of his spiritual gifts. And the apostles had more than one, as is obvious from reading the New Testament. He wanted to use at least one of his spiritual gifts to edify the church. In fact, he says here at the end of verse 11, that you may be established. And so Paul is an apostle, and as an apostle, he's an elder. Not all elders are apostles, but all apostles are elders. And the word elder, bishop, pastor, shepherd, it's used interchangeably in the New Testament for the same office. Now, I know in some denominations, they've created a hierarchy, and they say, well, he's a bishop. You're a pastor, but he's a bishop, meaning kind of like a super pastor. And no, there's no super pastors in the New Testament who are, you know, move preachers around and have authority that you don't find. Authority stops in the local assembly now that there are no apostles. But Paul, being a pastor, Peter himself says, as a fellow elder, 
He was not the first pope. If he was, he didn't know anything about it. He calls himself a fellow elder, a pastor in 1 Peter chapter 5. And so Paul sees himself in the same way. And one of the chief responsibilities of a pastor is to teach, to teach the Word of God, assuming they are a teaching pastor, and not all pastors are. And so Paul speaks of elders who are worthy of double honor, especially those who are engaged in preaching and teaching the Word of God. There are pastors and assemblies sometimes that are administrators and people with gifts of mercy and other things. But as a pastor teacher that Paul was, he wanted to teach the Word of God so they could be established. He wanted to solidify their faith further by coming and visiting with them. He had a second reason. Paul wanted to be encouraged by them. Look, if you will, now at verse 12. That is, that I may be encouraged to gather with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Mutual encouragement comes from being with God's people. These are strange days. We have to kind of work hard and creatively to be together. So we're together electronically. You know, there are some pastors who are against live streaming. I don't know where they're coming from. You know, certainly I don't like the idea of live streaming a service in normal times where it becomes a substitute for people physically gathering with God's people. But I believe with all my heart, if Paul were here today and he could preach to multiple cities at one time, he would in a flash. He wouldn't think twice about it. And some of these pastors who have been against live streaming, now that they can't even meet physically together, they've dug in their heels and they're still not live streaming at a time of crisis when their people need feeding and help and instruction and guidance. And that's a big mistake in my judgment. But think about Paul, he's an apostle. Paul's perhaps one of the greatest Christians in the history of the church. That's hard for me to rank the apostles. Well, Paul's greater than Peter, I'm not doing that. But without question, he is one of the greatest Christians in the history of the church. And here he's telling us that he wants to go to the church at Rome so he can be encouraged by them and they by him. Paul wasn't too big for his britches that he didn't need mutual encouragement and fellowship, and we do too. And we long for the time when we'll be able to physically assemble. But in the interim, we should do everything. The writer of the Hebrews says, encourage one another day after day as long as it's called today. There's an assumption in the New Testament that the kind of encouragement that you're offering is daily that you know enough Christians well enough where you can pick up the phone or FaceTime them or whatever it is you want to use to encourage them. He's not talking about a casual relationship to the body of Christ that some have in the best of times. They show up Sunday morning, they come in, they sing a few hymns, they maybe give to the Lord's work, they go out the door and they don't interface with anyone. That's not the way the church is to function. And I don't doubt for a moment that God may use some of the loss of his people assembling together to really put in more earnest desire for them to do what they should be, have been doing all along. We're not to forsake our assembling together. Look at verse 13. 
I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been pre- prevented so, so far. So Paul said, look, I, I wanted to come to you, but I haven't been able to. Now, there are different reasons at different times in Paul's ministry where he was prevented from visiting a church that he wanted to visit. For instance, when he writes the church at Thessalonica, he said, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, yet Satan thwarted us. There was a spiritual battle that hindered his initial desire to come to the city of Thessalonica. But at the end of this epistle, in chapter 15, he writes these words, for this reason I have often been hindered from coming to you. For what reason? For the reason mentioned in the two preceding verses. Let me read it to you. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, that I might not build upon another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see him, and they who have not heard shall understand. Paul saw vast opportunities to share the gospel in the rest of the Roman Empire, places that had not yet had an indigenous church of believers that needed to. Now, there's a third reason he had. One, he wanted to establish them, ground them in their faith as he came and taught them as a pastor, as an apostle. Two, he wanted to be encouraged by them, and they by him as well, obviously. But third, and this is the focus where we're going to plant ourselves tonight, he wanted to bear some fruit among them. He wanted to bear some fruit among them. Now, beyond strengthening these Christians by using his spiritual gift and beyond the mutual encouragement from fellowship, Paul has an evangelistic motivation. Look, if you will, now at verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul said, I want to obtain some fruit among you. Um, the ESV, if I remember, it says, I, I want to reap a harvest among you. That's, that's the nuance of it. He wanted to see some people saved. He wanted, as he had on his other missionary endeavors, wanted to see some Gentiles, some non-Jews come to Christ. He certainly was not opposed to seeing Jews come to Christ. He was heartbroken over the fact that his own brethren, read Romans 10, his own Jewish brothers had rejected the Messiah. Not all of the Jews did. In the early church, in the early days, in the early weeks, it was all Jewish. All the apostles were Jews. The day of Pentecost, everyone who was saved was a Jew. A few days later, when 5,000 heads of households, possibly 20,000 total in a single day, are all Jews who are saved. Jews, 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 turning to faith. Hard to say exactly how many out of the millions of Jews on the planet, some put it as low as 30,000, some put it as high as 200,000. Heaven will let us know the precise number. But overall, as a nation, he came to his own, John says, but his own received him not. And there came a point in Paul's ministry where every Jew seemingly who had an interest had been reached, and so he turned to the Gentiles, and God gave him a commission to primarily go to the Gentiles, not to the exclusion of the Jew, because he'll speak in this chapter of taking the gospel to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. But he wants to go to obtain some fruit. Think about that. I want to go to Rome to obtain some fruit. That's a powerful statement. 
Paul is going there expecting to win someone to Jesus. Do you know why some Christians rarely, if ever, see someone come into the kingdom? Because they don't expect to. They don't really believe that God wants to use them. And some of you listening to me tonight, that's precisely where you are. Now, I understand God uses us in different ways. Some plant the seed, some water the seed, some harvest the seed. But we ought to, with a sense of expectation, in whatever capacity God is using us, expect him to bring people into the kingdom. That's called faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, not that he exists, but that he's God, that he is the all-powerful, omnipotent God. And so he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Paul says, I've planned to come to you, been prevented thus far. Why do you want to come? So that I might obtain some fruit among you. Now, remember, fruit in the Bible is used in two ways. There's the fruit of the Spirit, and we've been in a series on that with Pastor Larry. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and he mentions those nine qualities. Not the fruits are, but the fruit is. The degree to which you have one is the degree to which you have the other. That's one usage of fruit, but there's also the fruit of conversion in the New Testament. For instance, in John 15, 16, when Jesus in that great discourse speaks of his relationship that he has with us as believers, what we have with one another, and then our relationship to unbelievers, he says in that chapter, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Why? That you should go and bear fruit. He's speaking here evangelistically, and that your fruit should remain. In other words, he has commissioned you to go into the world and bear fruit, the fruit of a convert, and that those converts would remain. Will they all remain? Clearly not. Jesus told otherwise in the parable of the sower. I was listening to one pastor and speaking to another pastor. Pastors like to talk baptism sometimes. How many people do you see baptized last year? He said, we saw 350 people baptized. Wow. How many did you see? Ten. The guy with ten said, I wonder how many of your 350 were real conversions. The pastor with his 350 turned to the pastor with ten. He said, I wonder how many of your ten were real. <laughs> you can't measure a man's ministry by the number of baptisms. But a man of God and a Christian should go preaching the gospel with an expectation of conversion. Some people live in large metropolitan areas of 10 million people. Some people live in towns of 300. And their ministries are no less significant in the eyes of God. And we have our superstar Christians in our day, but only heaven will show that the first will be last and the last will be first. But if we are to go with a sense of faith, we will go with a sense of expectation. Christ has appointed me to go and bear fruit. Do you believe that? If you don't, you're not going to see anyone one to Jesus. In whatever capacity God uses you, you're not going to see anyone. Because God doesn't honor unbelief. He honors faith. Now, Paul then goes on 
and he shares three motivations that he has for sharing the gospel. And each of these motivations is introduced with the words, I am. You might want to underline those words in your Bible. I am under obligation, both to Jews and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Look at verse 15. So for my part, I am eager. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome. And then verse 16, for I am not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There you have it, three I am statements. I am under obligation, I'm eager, and I am not ashamed. And if you think about it, those three I am statements in many ways are in direct contrast to the mood of the average Christian. Why is America going down so fast? because the average Christian in America is lukewarm and worldly. Many unconverted who name the name of Christ, they think they're converted. And of course, the Lord Jesus warned that this would be the state of the church at the end of the age. Lukewarm people. And lukewarm people are not passionately in love with Christ. I'm counseling a couple tomorrow in um, doing a premarital counseling. You know, and they, it's obvious they love each other. They talk about each other. When you're in love with someone, you talk about that person. When you're in love with Christ, you'll speak about him. And sadly, many Christians say, I'm under no obligation at all. Again, that's why we pay the missionary. That's why we pay the pastor. And if they attempt to reach out to some unbeliever, they think they've done God a favor. They, they, they're pleased with themselves. They don't really see it as an obligation. And so many are not eager to share the gospel. In fact, the fact is, is they lack enthusiasm. They're very reluctant. And sadly, many are ashamed. So Paul's spirit here is in sharp contrast, sadly, to the average Christian of our day. So I want us to think about what made Paul tick so hopefully we can share in it. It's just three simple things that will be done. First, the Apostle Paul's debt. I want you to see the Apostle Paul's debt here in verse 14. Again, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, I'm under obligation? The King James says, I am a debtor. Well, in the context of the New Testament, it is clear that Paul's obligation went in two directions. Number one, he knew that the gospel made him a debtor to Christ himself. Uh, he would repeatedly refer to himself as a slave, or you could render it as a bondservant of Christ. And both are excellent ways of rendering the Greek. People are fighting over that word. Both are excellent ways of rendering the Greek in the New Testament. We're slaves of Christ if we've met Him as Savior. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you're not your own? You're not your own, the Bible says, for you've been bought with a price. What price? The blood of Christ. He redeemed you not with silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb. That's what Jews today in Israel are celebrating Passover. Now, most of them are blinded to its true meaning. Someday their eyes will be opened 
God promises that, maybe sooner than we realize. But you've been purchased with the blood of a lamb. And so you're to glorify God in your body. And so if you are a slave of Christ and you understand biblical authority, then you are in submission to Christ. And when he says go, literally it's a participle as you go. People take that as a missionary verse. Go to Africa, go to India, go to Pakistan. No, it's literally as you go, not do discipleship. That's the great escape clause of so many Christians who just lead Bible studies and feel good about themselves where they don't think they have to do evangelism. The word disciple is used in different ways. Actually, the word discipleship never appears in the New Testament. The concept of building into new believers' lives and to sustaining existing Christians runs all the way through Scripture. But contextually, as you go, make converts, make disciples, make believers, not just of Jews, but now he broadens it to all nations, every person. So Paul was a debtor, number one, to Christ. But Paul secondly saw himself as a debtor to humanity. Paul understood that something that many of us sadly have never grasped in our day. I am a debtor. I am under obligation. One translation says, I have a duty. Another says, I am bound. Uh, it's the Greek word, afaletes. It was actually a financial term in the first century. And there are two ways in which you could become indebted to an individual. If I add down here in the front, loaned me $100, then I'm indebted to Ed until I hand him back that $100 and release my debt. But if Ed gave me $100 and said, I want you to give this to Drew, then I'm a double debtor. Ed has entrusted something to me in my debt to Ed, and really my debt to Drew is not released until I take that $100 and I hand it over to Drew. And that's really the sense in which Paul is using the word aphiletes here. He's a double debtor. He didn't owe the church of Rome anything in the sense that he had borrowed something from them that he had to pay back. But he had been given something. He had been given the gospel. And so throughout his epistles, Paul will describe himself as one, quote, unquote, entrusted with the gospel. That speaks of stewardship. Or the church at Galatia, he'll say, for I've been entrusted to the gospel to the uncircumcised. We have, he says in 1 Thessalonians 2, we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And so we speak not as pleasing men, but, to, but as to God who examines our hearts. In 1 Timothy 1.11, he says that he speaks there of the glorious gospel of the blessed God to which he has been entrusted. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Over and over and over again through the New Testament, he speaks of something that Christ had given to him. And so here I am under obligation to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Christ had entrusted to Paul, as he has to you, if you name the name of Christ, if you've been born from above... He has given you a stewardship. And when we meet Christ in heaven, it will be a serious time at the judgment seat of Christ. It's not a time of punishment 
for our punishment and wrath have been taken out fully in a substitute where he can shout to tell us die, it's finished. Again, a financial term, paid in full, you could render it. And I hope your debt has been paid in full. But if it has, you are going to give an account as a believer once you get to heaven. And one of the areas in which God evaluates the believer, and in our series Back to Basics, we call it the discovery class here, we go through a number of areas in which God will judge the believer. Areas that God plainly says, here's some areas that I'm going to ask you to give an account on. And one of those areas is what we did in terms of our stewardship with the gospel. I'm under our obligation to Greeks and to barbarians. Notice the second group, group, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, the Jews divided the world with the phrase Jews and Greeks, and their line of demarcation was basically religion. Jews were considered the believers of the day. Greeks, for the most part, and it's true, they were the pagans. Um, whereas Greeks and Romans... In their everyday speech, they divided the world into Greeks and barbarians. Uh, barbarians, a barbarian is barbar in, uh, in Greek. It almost comes over directly into English. It means to murmur. They were the uneducated people, the people who didn't speak Greek properly. They're considered barbarian. Today, we might say, well, he doesn't use good English, or he's un uneducated. And Paul says, look, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, to the Jew and to the Greek. I owe the gospel to everyone, he is saying, because everyone is in need. And that's what grace is about. It's amazing grace for every race. And I want to tell you, if your love for people, your compassion is thwarted by some category you've created in your mind, then you don't have the kind of love that Christ has for the world. We live in a day 30 years ago, Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, and thousands and thousands of pastors across America adopted an unbiblical paradigm on how to do ministry. So they had Samantha Sam and, I mean, uh, Saddleback Sam and Saddleback Samantha and Hybels had his and, oh, who's your target audience? Well, it's this person and they're between this age and this age and, you know, it's usually the young, uh, fluent, they make between, I mean, you could go on their website, here's our target audience, they make between this amount of money and this amount of, it, it was disgusting to me, absolutely disgusting. And then we've seen the fruit of Hybel's crash and what he's sold the church. And so we've got these people who, you know, used to be baby boomers or millennials or Generation X, and yeah, we create the whole service around them. You know, most of those churches are in deep trouble because those churches financially are crashing right now. I've been in ministry for 40 years, and I know hundreds and hundreds of pastors, and we communicate on a regular basis. So many of those churches are crashing. Why? Because they, they adopted a model that was unbiblical. And what some of those guys like Heibel, now he's old, what he didn't understand is someday he would be old. 
And God values old people in the church. When I came to this church, it was very unhealthy. And one of its leaders with a sense of pride said, well, most people, you know, they're around 28, 30 years of age. And I said, that's terrible. Terrible. He was proud of it. I said, it's unhealthy. Why don't you have some older people here? They had a few, but not many. It's unhealthy when you do not have a a cross of what the culture represents. There's old people and young people in every culture. And usually in most communities, there's educated, there's uneducated, and now the melting pot in America because we've only been able to survive as a nation because we've aborted 66 million of our young We wouldn't have anybody to pick the crops out on the field were we not bringing in people from other nations. And sadly, what's happened in America, in the church, is we've created these categories of people that we want to reach. And I want to say to you that if you don't have the kind of obligation that Paul has, religious, non-religious, Jew or Greek, educated, uneducated, Greek or barbarian, then you don't have the kind of love that he had and that God wants you to have. And if that's in your heart today, you need to repent of it. And if you're a pastor and that's in your heart, you need to repent of a fallen worldly model that you've adopted for your church. In Acts 20, Paul says, and now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. What was Paul saying? He said, I paid my debts. Whenever God gave me an open door and an opportunity to share the gospel, I went through it. Solomon says this in Proverbs 11, but the fruit of the righteous is the tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. Are you a wise person today? One dimension that you are wise is that you have a desire to win people to the Savior. And I don't care how faithfully you attend the church you go to, how much money you may give, whether you teach Sunday school or adults or sing in the choir or maybe are a deacon or even an elder in the church that you are representing. If you're not involved in seeking to bring people into the kingdom of God, then you are missing part of God's major plan for you. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That's why he came. That's a purpose statement. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. If you're not fishing for men, you're not following Christ. So number one, Paul had a debt that he wanted to pay. Number two, I want you to see beyond Paul's debt, Paul's determination. Paul's determination. Not only did he say, I am under obligation, He says in verse 15, so for my part, I am eager, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, what made Paul so eager? Well, his determination, his eagerness is expressed in two ways. First, he knew that this was the best news 
that he could ever share with someone. He's eager to preach the gospel. Now, I hope you know what the gospel is, and here it's articular. In the Greek New Testament, euangelion, or the verb euangelizo, means to proclaim good news. And when it's articular, when you see the pointing word, as we would tell our children when we're teaching them the parts of speech, the article is the pointing word. It points at something. It changes the dimension of the word. Now, certainly in Koine Greek of the New Testament, if you do word studies outside, on its outside usage, it has many, many meanings, the word gospel. It could be used in a military realm of someone who won a victory and their gospel, their good news was, we won. Or it could be used by a couple who were blessed with a baby and they say, we have a boy. It could be used if someone who is sick and is now well, I've been healed, just meant good news. And in a few times in the New Testament, it's used in a broad sense, just of good news in general. But whenever you see the word gospel, with the article, the, it's referring to a specific good news, namely to the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And that's the best news the world will ever hear. Paul says it's a trustworthy statement, <clears throat> deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom he says, I am foremost of all. That's good news. If you understand that you are a sinner and you can be forgiven, and if you understand that you've been forgiven and you can tell other people how to be forgiven, that's the best news they will ever hear. There's a lot of sadness in America tonight. A lot of people died today, a lot of people. A lot of homes, broken hearts, a lot of lost people who have no hope no genuine hope. It's a manufactured hope. He is in a better place. He is an angel now. And all these statements that have nothing to do with the truth. If someone does not name the name of Christ, they've gone out into an eternity without the Lord. So one, Paul was determined. He knew this was the best news. Secondly, Paul was determined because he knew this news needed to be shared. Look again in verse 15. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Has God opened your eyes to understand the plan of salvation? If you don't really know what that means, tune in Sunday. Come to the next Meet the Pastor, which will be a week from Sunday, and you can live stream it. Or go to searchthescriptures.org and on the home page, click on the message, would you like to know God is your friend? But if God has opened your eyes to share the gospel, then why aren't you doing it? I mean, what is good news for? You know, when, when we would have a baby, we'd pick up the telephone and we'd start calling people because we had good news to share. Well, you've got the best news that you can ever share. And Paul was determined to get the gospel out no matter what. You're in Romans. Turn over a few books to 2 Corinthians. Right after Romans is 1 Corinthians. And go to the book of 2 Corinthians, if you will, and turn to um, chapter 11. Chapter 11. Uh, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he reminds them that 
he was not like their false teachers who'd come into the church only to feather his own nest. Paul was there because he loved people, and he loved sinners like Christ did. And he believed that Christ died for all, that Christ didn't die for this segment of the world we call the elect, that Christ died for all, that he could look at anyone in the eye and say, God loves you, Christ died for you. And it created a determination in his spirit to do whatever he needed to do to get the gospel out there. Look at 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Again, he's comparing himself with these phony, baloney, false teachers, and there are so many of them in the so-called evangelical church today. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is a daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches." Wow. He says earlier in this epistle, let me just read it to you. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction. We just read a list. You know what he calls that list? Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, But of the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, and the things which are not seen are eternal. Do you see why God could use this little Jewish man to turn the first century world upside down for Jesus Christ? It's because he had a determination in his spirit to share the gospel. Third, I want you to think about Paul's declaration. Paul's declaration. Beyond Paul's debt, Paul's determination, Paul's declaration. We are told now in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Lord knew that unbelievers would be ashamed to identify with him, but it's equally true that Paul warns Timothy not to be ashamed of Christ, that it's possible for a Christian on occasion to be ashamed of the Lord. So Paul writes in 2 Timothy, so don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. And then he says, and that is why I suffer these things. But I am not ashamed because I know the one whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted, that, he is, that has been entrusted to me until that day. Paul knew that he could be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. He knew that the message of the cross, as he says to the Corinthians, was foolishness to some. To the religious man, he said it was a stumbling block. 
And so the gospel will often arouse hatred. It's watching one of these commentators on CNN just despising this brother. He's a brother in Christ, the guy who, I don't know, I call him Mr. Pillow. You know, that great pillow company. He came out of a drug alcohol background, was wondrously converted. And he stood up there with the president and a number of other businessmen from across our nation. And he just shared a brief testimony. He said, I hope that God will use these days to get us back to reading the Bible again and doing the things that are really important. And they have been just frying this guy because there's a hatred. There's a growing hatred in this land we call America for the things that are holy and right and true. And more and more, if you stand for Christ, you will be opposed, you'll be ridiculed. You'll be viewed with a sense of contempt, maybe even persecuted. But I want you to notice why Paul has the kind of compassion to preach the gospel. And again, they are summarized in these three I am statements. But I want you to notice how these I am statements are connected. He writes in verse 14, there's a progression here. In verse 14, I am under obligation. And then verse 15 begins, so, or in the old New American Standard, thus, so or thus, for my part, I am eager. The NIV paraphrases that one Greek word, this is why. Then circle the first word of verse 16. It's the three-letter word for. Now, if you're using the NIV 84, it's not even there. And that's, again, why you need a formal equivalent translation versus a dynamic equivalent translation that would be more like the NIV that does a lot of paraphrasing. Because if you're going to truly study the Bible and you want to see the nuance the fine nuance that the Spirit of God gave us, you don't want to miss a single word. So don't miss the flow of thought that the Spirit of God inspired through the pen of the Apostle Paul. These little connective words, I am under obligation, so or thus, I am eager, for I am not ashamed. Why are you not ashamed? For it is the power of God. So three affirmations linked together in a cause-effect relationship. Negatively, I am not ashamed, Positively, he is eager. Why are you eager? For two reasons. First, because it's a debt to humanity. I'm under obligation, which is why we must discharge this message. And secondly, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's a beautiful connection. Now, he gives three reasons in this verse why he's not ashamed. And you might want to think your way through these. Number one, he's not ashamed of the person of the gospel. The person, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of who? Of Christ. He's not ashamed of the Lord Jesus. He has already said back in verse 3 in the opening verses that this is the gospel concerning his son. In verse 9, he'll call it the gospel of his son. Simply said, the gospel, the good news, is all about Jesus. It's all about him and his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, think your way through this because in the first century, to be a follower of the Lord Jesus was to be a part of a despised minority. I mean, one, you're following a Jew. Jesus is a Jew, I would say to all those anti-Semites listening to me. He is a Jew. The Savior of the world that you will someday stand before is a Jew in his humanity. Jews were despised. 
They've been hated almost since their inception. And I gave you in our series on the Revelation six reasons why the Jews are so hated. But lay that aside, he was a Jew who was crucified. You crucify the basis of all criminals. Third, he's from a place called Israel, and he's crucified in a city called Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital of a country that is a know-nothing country in the eyes of the Romans, less than honorable as a nation. So Paul is following a Jew who was crucified, something you do to criminals, from a nation that is despised and from a city that seemingly was hated by the Roman leadership. Not to mention, Paul has described himself as small in appearance and unimpressive and contemptible in his speech. Paul was not some great orator as the world might view him. And he's preaching a message where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Look back up in verse 4. He's already said that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power. How? By the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. I pray that I will never be ashamed of the gospel. Sometimes Christians think, well, at times I'm ashamed to share the gospel because I'm not sure I'm as good a Christian as I should be. Well, let me inform you, you're not. None of us are. Now, that's not a reason to be hypocritical. But if you're waiting to arrive to a certain point, the only one who's ever arrived is the Lord Jesus, and you won't fully arrive until you are glorified and your salvation is completed. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. So the gospel that he's not ashamed about concerns the person of Christ, but Paul was not ashamed either about the power of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation. And salvation is a great theological word in the book of Romans, where Paul speaks of our justification, where we are saved from the penalty of sin. He spends three chapters dealing with our sanctification, how God is changing us and freeing us from sin's power. And he also speaks of glorification when we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. But the gospel is God's way of getting people from being condemned people under wrath to being in his favor. That is good news, and that is good news that is worth sharing. But what is happening today in the modern evangelical church? We think that we have this responsibility to fight all the social evils. That is not the principal function of the body of Christ, to fight the social evils of this church. Take abortion, for instance. I remember standing on the campus at Duke University dealing with a guy who was an agnostic. And I was able to reason with him just logically why abortion, at least he agreed in some cases, were wrong. There was Duke Hospital 100 yards from us. I said, today, possibly, in that hospital, a woman will go into that, into that place, six months pregnant, wanting her baby to be saved because she's going into premature labor. And another woman will go into that same hospital, six months pregnant, wanting her baby to be exterminated. 
tell me the logic behind that. And we reasoned and we reasoned and we reasoned. So you can reason with people logically sometimes, medically, different arguments, and change their way of view. But take abortion, and I'm just speaking to one subject. You win someone to Jesus, and they'll hate abortion. Why? Because they are new creatures in Christ. They'll have a different way of thinking about life and the preciousness of life because when you're regenerate by the Spirit of God, you're able to absorb and understand spiritual things. That's the power of the gospel. I'm not against feeding the hungry. If we need to put food in the person's stomach so they can hear the message, then that's what we should do. But the principal role of the body of Christ is not to try to change the social ills of this world because you'll never do it. It's like shining the brass on the Titanic as it's going down. You're wasting your time. Our social responsibility should never usurp the principal responsibility that God has given the body of Christ to preach the gospel. Third, Paul was not ashamed of the plan of the gospel and the plan of the gospel is that it's God's power to save to who? To everyone who believes. Our Father, we thank you that we can come to a throne of grace to find help in time of need, that we can intercede for people. We pray for our president that you would help him and strengthen him and give him the wisdom that he needs to make good and right decisions. In spite of the opposition he may face, help him to do what's right. Thank you for our Vice President, Mike Pence, that he knows you, loves you, studies the Word of God daily. Let him be a great influence on our President in a good and holy way. We pray for the mourning across our nation. I'm reminded on this Passover, Father, that when you brought judgment across the land of Egypt, the cries and the screams and the mourning that went out on every home that didn't believe what you had said. Had any Egyptian, you said, even put the blood on the doorpost and the lentil, that you would have passed over the firstborn in that house, be that firstborn 10 or 110, it didn't make any difference. You could have spared those children, those adults that were firstborn. And thank you that this Passover we celebrate that you will pass over the wrath that our sin deserves if we've placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never promised us freedom from death, but you have promised us freedom from the fear of death because of Christ Jesus who overcame through the blood of his cross death itself. Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us as a congregation to everyone listening, some who may be live streaming in other states, some who are not members of our church, but they are a part of us during these weeks and months together. Help them in turn to reach people in their communities. And may the gospel go out. May the Spirit of God bless every born-again Bible-believing pastor this coming Lord's Day. May you bring many people into your kingdom here and across the world. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.